morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the Olivet Discourse. That's Matthew 24 and 25. It's called that because Jesus preached it from the Mount of Olives. We'll be in Matthew 24, 16 to 22. We're taking a couple months to look at the Olivet Discourse, a little bit about the end times. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at the end times, we do not pretend to understand every detail. And we ask, Father, that we would learn to major on the clear end time details, be convinced in our hearts on some of the secondary issues, but hold them with humility. We ask, Father, that you would guide what I say today, allow it to give us a glimpse of what will happen, maybe for some a reminder, for others maybe new information. But more than anything, we want to see a great, sovereign, powerful, good, perfect God. Sow us something of yourself today. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Perhaps like most Americans, I've seen the effects of natural disasters, of war, of acts of treason. I've actually never been in the midst of it. I've seen the after effects of it. I remember 9-11. It was just prior to Betty Ann and I moving to Wisconsin. We were still in Pennsylvania, but I wasn't very close to our home when it happened. I was actually uh, several hours away, much closer to New York City. I was with a dozen pastors. And in the midst of our getting together, we saw what many Americans, what people around the world saw, the first plane flying into the first tower. And I looked around and I realized that I might be the only person in the room that does not directly know someone who just died. Now that didn't prove exactly to be true, but many, if not all of the pastors in that room beside me were going to officiate funerals from Towers 1 and 2. And I remember thinking to myself, this is horrible. And I knew one of the pastors who officiated one of the funerals that was actually sent by airwaves across the world. His name is Jay Button. Jay's wife grew up in the same church I grew up in. He was married in my home church. He officiated the funeral of the captain of the second United flight, the pilot. He lived in Yardley, Pennsylvania. They had to borrow a Catholic church because his church wasn't large enough for the 1,000 United employees that showed up at that funeral. 
And we think about 9-11 and, and it's horrific. The carnage, the pain, the agony that people, Americans, people around the world endured. I think about another event that took place in 2010 in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. At the time, there were some individuals from Highland at the other side of the island of Hispaniola, down in the Dominican. They were a medical mission and they traveled to the border because in 2010, a 7.0 on the Richter scale, earthquake hit Port-au-Prince. I wasn't there, but I heard about the carnage. We're not sure how many people died, but at least a quarter million and another 300,000 suffered injury. And some from the medical team went up and provided help. I've been to Port-au-Prince several times since that earthquake. And you can still see burnt buildings. You can still see concrete that is cracked. You can still see rusted rebar coming out of the ground. In certain parts, it still looks like a war zone. And I can't imagine the carnage. I can't imagine the suffering and the pain that individuals endured in the Port-au-Prince area. I think of several concentration camps that I've visited in Europe. If you have been to a concentration camp, it's hard to explain, but you walk onto the, the property and there's this heaviness, even an evilness that you feel even though we are many years from it. And you think of the carnage. Six million Jews murdered simply because they're Jewish. A half a million Soviets murdered because they were Soviets. People who claimed homosexuality. We have the gypsies. We have the enemies of Nazism all murdered in concentration camps and the evil is palpable. It's just, it's just evil. And we think about these events. Think of World War II itself. 20 million soldiers died in World War II. 55 million civilians died in World War II. We're not good with our history. If we were, we would know that the country that suffered the greatest was the Soviets. Nine of the 20 million soldiers who died were Soviet. 19 of the upward of 55 million civilians, 19 million civilians died in the Soviet Union. The carnage, the pain, I can't imagine it. And I don't want to in any way demean it. It's beyond what we can offer, what we can understand. And yet scripture tells us that something greater, something more powerful, something more painful is still to come. Let me read from Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation. I believe we are talking about the Second half of Daniel's 70th week. So we're talking about 
what older commentaries called the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, most of which is covered in Revelation 6 to 18. And then there will be Great Tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so you and I are introduced to Matthew's topic today. Now I want to pick up in our text and talk about this period of time from verse 15, the abomination of desolation, all the way through the last part of the Great Tribulation. You remember last week, perhaps, that the abomination of desolation, Daniel first talks about it. He talks about it in chapters 9, 11, and 12. It's also talked about in Matthew, and it's talked about by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a time period halfway through Daniel's 70th week, That 70th week is seven years, the great tribulation, halfway through in a rebuilt temple. We're told both in the Old and the New Testament that there will be a third temple, Ezekiel 40 to 48 and 2 Thessalonians 2. There will be yet a third temple and the man of lawlessness. That's what Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians 2. John calls him the Antichrist in 1 John. Daniel calls him the little horn in Daniel 7 verse 8. In the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, the 5th verse, he's called the beast. He's a human that is indwelt by Satan. He will set up an image of himself, a likeness of himself, halfway through the great tribulation, and he will demand that humanity worships him. Now think about this imposter, Jesus Christ, fully God, takes on humanity. We call it the incarnation, fully God, fully man. So what does Satan do? He takes on humanity. He indwells a human. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does Satan do? He sets up an unholy trinity. Satan, the antichrist in which he indwells a human and the false prophet. God is worshiped in the temple. Satan will rebuild a temple. God is bowed to in the temple. Satan will demand that humanity worship him in a rebuilt temple. This is what's going on in the text for today. He will demand not only that all the nations obey him politically and militarily, but also he will create a syncretistic religion, a one world order religion where he is the center. And he will even, for the first three and a half years, be the protector of Jews. And then he will be the persecutor of Jews. And you remember that during this period of time, many will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Lord has not left the world alone. And so in Revelation chapter 11, God sends two witnesses from heaven. I believe they to be Moses and Elijah, but they will perform great miracles. They will traverse the earth, the world. Many will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
Revelation 7 and 14 tells us that 144,000 Jews will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us that that is the regrafting of the Jewish nation. Today, Israel, by and large, is agnostic and atheistic. But a day is coming when many Jews from all the tribes will come to believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and they will be regrafted in to the family of God. And in the beginning, Satan, the Antichrist, will appear to be on the side of the Jews. He will be their protector, but he will soon be their persecutor. That time period of the switch is the abomination of desolation when he sets up an image of himself and demands worship. Let me read to you out of Daniel about this event. This is from Daniel 9, the 27th verse. And he, that's the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many, with world leaders and in fact with Jews. For one week. So how long is the covenant? Seven years. That's one week. Daniel's 70th week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I think that's telling us for the first part, the first three and a half years of the rebuilt temple, Satan will allow sacrifices to once again take place on the temple mount. Now he's promised a covenant for for seven years, but halfway through he breaks it and he ends sacrifices. There will be no sacrifices to God, only to himself. He should put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations, he'll set up an image of himself in the rebuilt temple. Shall come one, Antichrist, who makes desolate. That's the word that means destruction. Everything Antichrist touches, he will destroy. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Until the seven years are up. At which time, the desolator, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. Some will go into the lake of fire and, and the Satan himself will be bound for a thousand years. While Jesus will reign physically, bodily here on earth earth. That's our setting for today's text. It's all about really the last three and a half years. Again, what the older commentaries call the great tribulation, because that's the period of the judges, the judgments. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bulls are all from the three and a half year mark to the end. It's a time of utter destruction. Revelation 13, 5 to 8, talks about this event. Listen to Revelation 13, 5 to 8. And the beast, that's the Antichrist, was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven also is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. God sovereignly will allow this. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name 
has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. No wonder that our text is going to say, when these events come, flee to the mountains, especially if you are a believer, flee to the mountains, especially if you are a Jew, that covenant is going to be broken, flee to the mountains. The Old Testament talks a lot about this. I'll just read one passage. Zechariah, perhaps not a book we look at a lot. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds should be cut off and perish. Now he's talking about Jews. At the halfway mark, when the protector of Jews, the Antichrist, becomes the persecutor of Jews, he will hunt down the Jews and he will murder two-thirds of them. That's what Zechariah is saying. Two-thirds should be cut off and perish. And one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, says God, and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. That is, the Lord will mature them and they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is the regrafting of the Jewish population, some of it, who will bow their knee before the Lord and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, during this time period, I can't emphasize enough the urgency of those who are believers and how they must flee this beast, this antichrist, this little horn, this man of lawlessness. And so we have several metaphors given to us in the text. In verses 17 and 18, it says that if you're on your roof and the beast has come and flee. Now think of a building in the first century, a house. It was one room with a flat roof and on the roof it was timbers with dirt and on the outside there was a ladder to the roof and you would go up there and you would entertain and you were eating. And it says if you're up there, you're entertaining, you're eating and you hear that the beast is coming, go down the ladder, don't even take the time to go in your room. Don't grab anything, flee to the hills because this beast, this antichrist, this, this Satan is that evil, that fearsome. And then it goes on and says, if you're out in the fields and you put your coat on a post and you're on the other side of the field working and you hear that the beast is coming, don't go after your coat. You don't have time. Run to the hills. Get out of Dodge. And then it says, pray that you're not pregnant or you're not nursing or that it's not winter or it's not the Sabbath because a woman who is pregnant or nursing is going to be impeded. She won't be able to run fast. If it's winter, it's the rainy season and, and the rivers swell. If it's the Sabbath, the Sabbat, even to this day, a lot of Israel shuts down. Hard to get gas, hard to get petroleum, hard to travel on the Sabbat. Pray, the text says, that these events don't happen in these kind of scenarios because you gotta go. The beast is evil. The Antichrist is evil. Don't underestimate the evil of the enemy of our souls. Get out of town. That's what the text is telling us.
In fact, verses 21 and 22 says this. Let me find it. Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then, then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's definitely talking about the last half of Daniel's 70th week. He's talking about what we read in Revelation 6 to 18, which is dominant of the last half. He's talking about the judgments, 21 of which God will pour out or allow on humanity. And so we have seven seals. Actually, I think the seven seals are all caused by the Antichrist. I think God just removes his restraining hand and the Antichrist brings devastation of which the world had not yet experienced. And then we go into the seven trumpets from God and then the seven bulls. We're going to put them up in a group. I'm going to read them to you with the corresponding text. Seal one, Antichrist appears. That's the abomination of desolation. He becomes a clear leader of the world. Seal two, because of him, violence and warfare will increase. In fact, he will cause both of them, which will lead to inflation and famine. Seal three, which will cause death through famine and pestilence and wild animals. Seal four, he will cause the martyrdom of Christ's followers. He will hunt down believers who have come to Christ in the last three and a half years. Seal five, there will be a devastating work, earthquake, an astrological upheaval. And then seal seven is seven angels preparing for the next seven judgments that come directly from God. Because people will not turn to the Lord, they will not acknowledge God, they will shake their fist at God. God will bring judgment. The seven trumpets, hail and fire, death of much of the aquatic life, an astrological event that poisons much of the world's water supply, less daylight, more night, demonic locusts, that will bite in a fierce way and bring great pain. Four avenging angels who will take a third of humanity. And then we have seven more angels who will bring God's wrath through the bowls. Bowl one, there will be painful sores for those who have taken the mark of the beast, who have worshipped the beast. Bowl two, Sea life is killed. Bowl three, the remaining water supply is polluted. Bowl four, there will be intense heat. And notice the statement made in Scripture, yet the unredeemed do not repent. Rather than falling on their knees, rather than saying, you are God, you are in control, how wrong I have been, they will rail against God. Bowl five, darkness. And notice the statement, yet the unredeemed still curse God 
and will not repent. Bull 6, the battlefield for Armageddon is prepared, including the drying up of the Euphrates River. And Bull 7, the greatest earthquake with other events, cities will fall, hailstone will come, all upon unredeemed humanity. This is exactly what Matthew refers to in verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of elect, those days will be cut short. Now what the text is saying when it says cut short is that there will be 1,260 days. A Jewish calendar does not have 365 days. In those days it had 360 days. God will end it not prematurely, but not elongating it. At 1,260 days, all of this will be over and Satan and his minions will be bound. The false prophet and the Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan himself will be bound for a thousand years. So at the end of those three and a half years, the great tribulation, then Jesus will come. Revelation 21 to 6 or 1 to 7 tells us six times that there will be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And I'll just, just share my heart. I know of nowhere in scripture where a number is given to us six times that we're not to take it literally. I just, I have a hard time believing this could be a figurative number because it's repeated, it's repeated, it's repeated six times in seven verses. And so what we will have is after three and a half years of utter destruction, then we will have a Garden of Eden-like 1,000 years where Satan will be bound, where Jesus will physically, bodily reign here on earth. And at the end of the 1,000 years, Satan will be released. There will be a battle, Gog and Magog. Jesus will win and we will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Now clearly, these kind of messages tell us information about what ought to be what we ought to believe in the future. But I want to get practical for a moment. I think there's several things we can talk about that are practical besides information. The first is this. You'll notice in the text that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, God sends out witnesses. He sends out two witnesses to share, to cause people to believe in Christ. But at the three and a half year mark, for the only time ever in scripture, God says to the believer, run. Run. He doesn't say that now. He says it then. Now is the age of grace. We don't run from an unbeliever. We have compassion. We have love. Now is the age of grace. Now is the age of Matthew 9, 37 and 38, which says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest 
to send out laborers, that would be us, into his harvest field. This is the age of grace. This is the age where we're not avoiding unbelievers. We're embracing unbelievers, not what they believe, but we're embracing them as people made in the imago Dei, in the image of God, people of whom Jesus died for, people who need to believe in Jesus Christ. This is the age of grace. And look out onto the harvest. It is white. And God says, this is the time we tell people about Jesus. This is the time we invite individuals to come to church where they'll hear about Jesus. This is the time we testify to everyone's need for Jesus Christ. This is the age of grace. A time for running will come. I believe the church will be removed. So if you know Jesus, you're not going to be running. You don't ever need your Nikes. This is the age of grace where we share the gospel with others. The second thing that I want to draw from the text is this. We need to be weary of who Satan is. Satan in our day is a cute little emoji. That's how he's treated. That's not how the Bible treats him. It calls him a serpent. It calls him something that is angry, bitter, fierce. That's Satan. And if I walk away from anything from the text, I want to remember who the enemy of my soul is. This is why we read in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, put on the full armor of God. The armor of God is what we ought to don every day. It's the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is salvation by faith in Christ, confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Jesus, who never sinned, went to the cross, paid the penalty of sin, which is death, rose on the third day. And if we would confess that we are in need of a Savior, that we are sinners, believe in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, as the payment of our sin, we would be given eternal life. That's the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. And although I only need to believe in Christ for salvation, a one-time event that has implications for the rest of my life. I need to preach the gospel to myself every day to remind myself I am a debtor. And what I offer to the Lord so shallow is my worship. And so I live to worship, you live to worship the Lord. Then there's the belt of truth. The belt of truth is that we are purveyors of truth, part of which is that judgment is coming, that this is the day of grace. Believe and receive Christ. And then there's the breastplate of righteousness. And we seek to live as the Lord would have us live. And then there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which reminds us that we need to be in the Word, in devotions. We need to be in the Word, in Bible study. We need to be in the Word listening to messages and applying them to our lives. And then there's the shield of faith to put out the flaming darts of the evil one because he comes for us. And then the helmet of salvation is our assurance in Christ. We sang about it this morning. 
if we know Christ, she's holding on to us. And then verse 18 says it's all tied together by a life of prayer. That's the armor of God. Because Satan is not an emoji. He's real. He's fierce. I want to remind myself of three verses. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now think about that for a moment. What's going on right now? Darkness is being disguised as light. What God says is moral, the world says is immoral. And we have darkness claiming it's light. And we have light being called darkness. And we've been warned. This is Satan's plan. And we're seeing it lived out before us. But I want to remind myself of yet another verse. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We serve a risen Savior who empowers us by his Spirit to live God-centered lives. And then I think of 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober and alert. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If I walk away with anything besides some information on what's happening, I want to remind myself that Satan is not an emoji. He's real. He's real. If you go to a third world country where the demonic is front and center, most people know he's real. In our sophisticated country, Satan is happy to be an emoji because if we don't believe in him, we're not aware of his wiles. We're not putting on the armor of God. We don't remember he prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. So remember, the enemy is real. The armor is necessary. And greater is he who is in you than he, Satan, who is in the world. Let's pray. Father God, uh, again, we want to major on the major details. I have little doubt that when I get to heaven, some of the details that I thought I understood, I'll be schooled in. But Father, I know the majors. We all know the majors. Your son is coming back. Your son rules. The enemy of our soul is looking to undermine our witness. Empower us by your spirit that we may stand firm and allow us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to love people, to care about souls, and to share your salvation with others. Give us your heart we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.